Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're going to be studying tonight from the book of Luke, chapter 6. So if you would, go ahead and open to that place, Luke 6, and that'll be the basis of our, our study for the evening. Uh, thank you for joining us. This is our midweek devotional time, and I uh, want to continue to remember those uh, that we've been mentioning uh, and uh, that we've been getting emails about who are sick and who are in the hospital and uh, be in prayer for them and thinking about them. This is a time where it seems like to me it would be really good for us to be able to be together, uh, and yet uh, it's something where even though we're apart, we need to be thinking about each other, and we're, we're still a group and we're still united even though we're not able to be together uh, in the same way as normal at this time. Uh, Luke chapter 6, uh, what we're going to do tonight is study some from some of Jesus' teaching. And what I want to show you is Jesus' teaching and then give you an example of uh, some different elements that you see in Jesus' teaching from other places in the Bible. So Luke chapter 6, I'm just going to begin by reading here in verse 27. Jesus says, Luke six twenty-seven. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you, hope to, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil." Be merciful, as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So Jesus teaches us about a world that's full of hostility. You can see in verse 27, we have enemies and people who hate us. Verse 28, people are cursing us and abusing us. Verse 29, they're striking us and taking away our clothes. Verse 30, there are people who are taking away our goods. So how do you respond in a world like that, a world full of hostility? I think we relate to the difficulty of that question because that is our world. And what we learn pretty quickly is that we have to be able to protect ourselves and defend ourselves in a world like that. That when others hurt us, we have to be prepared to lash out and hurt them back. We stand up and we fight back. Except that's not at all what Jesus says here. Jesus says, no, that's not the way you deal with a hostile world. He says the exact opposite. That the answer to a hostile world is kindness. It is as if we are living in a desert of hatred and meanness and evil. And Jesus wants his people to become an oasis of kindness. And that's the picture that I want us to think about for a few minutes tonight. To think about how we can respond with kindness in a world like ours. It seems to me that we are living in a time in which people being unkind 
and hostile seems to be worsening and intensifying. And so Jesus' words about how Christians respond to that seem to me to be even more appropriate than ever. As we say, how can we be kind in a time like ours? So let's think about that for a few minutes tonight. The first thing I want to say is that we can become an oasis of kindness by showing undeserved kindness. So if you look at verse 27 with me, in verse 27 he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So in the face of people hating us, cursing us, abusing us, striking us, Jesus says, show kindness to them. Love them, he says in verse 27. Do good to them, bless them, pray for them, turn the other cheek to them. So when we are treated this way, our natural reaction is to give them what they deserve. We want justice for ourselves. We want to lash back. And Jesus says, instead, you be kind. Now what's interesting about this is that everyone would acknowledge that if someone treats us this way, that they deserve to be treated that way in return. That responding in kind is what they deserve. And no one would blame us for that, at least not in the broader world. No one would say, oh, that's not fair. Instead, they would say, yeah, I mean, they deserve it. You give them what they deserve. But Jesus says, instead of responding to their hostility with hostility and their hatred with hatred, you be kind instead. So that means that we have to be prepared to extend kindness to people who don't deserve it. Knowing what they deserve, knowing what they deserve from me, I show kindness anyway. Jesus says, that's the way my people are going to be. And that is, of course, the way Jesus is. He shows undeserved kindness. Verse 30 He says, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So instead of treating others the way we feel they deserve to be treated, we unfailingly treat them, verse 31, as we wish they would treat us. As we wish they would treat us, not as they do, but as we wish that they would. They don't deserve it. And that's the point. They don't deserve our kindness. There is a standard, verse 31 talks about it, that is beyond what people do to us. That standard is, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Independent of what they deserve, kindness comes from me. I become an oasis of kindness, even when others don't deserve my kindness. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. I was thinking about this because I had lunch at Chick-fil-A today. Well, not at Chick-fil-A, but I got food from there. And when you go to Chick-fil-A, everybody is so polite all the time. And it occurred to me as I was had these people being polite to me, I thought, well, you know, it's not really impressive. It's not really a moral decision for me to be polite to the Chick-fil-A people. Because, I mean, after all, they're always polite to me. Pretty sure if they weren't polite, they wouldn't be working at Chick-fil-A very long. So if what Jesus is saying here is very similar to that. You know, if, if all you're doing is being nice to the Chick-fil-A people, 
Well, what are you doing that makes you any different from people who don't have any knowledge of God? Don't sinners do the same thing, he says in verse 32? Even sinners love those who love them. That's not a high bar of kindness that we just say, well, people have to be really nice to me and then I'll be nice to them. Anyone can do that. Jesus says there is a higher path. Verse 35, he says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So he is exposing the shallowness of only loving those who are kind to us. And he says, that kind of love is not really love. It's just kind of a transaction. You know, I'm kind to you. You're kind to me because I know if I'm kind to you, eventually you'll be kind back to me. How does that make us different, he says. We become an oasis of kindness. Not when we show kindness to the people who are kind to us, but when we show undeserved kindness. I hope that you hear behind Jesus' teaching what he's actually addressing. That there is a way of treating other people that is based on their behavior. You know, I can change my behavior to react to yours. When you hurt me, when you hate me, when you're mean to me, I get to hurt you and I get to be mean to you. So whatever you do then sets the temperature for what I'm going to do in response. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way I want my people to live. But don't you feel so justified when somebody is mean to you and you get to be mean back? When somebody says ugly things and you say ugly things right back, somebody hits you and you hit them back. Somebody is ugly to you online and you're ugly to them back. Somebody runs you down to the boss and you can run them down. Don't you feel like, oh, this is their fault. It's right for me to hate them. It's right for me to be ugly. It's right for me to yell and to slander and to mock. I can get angry and I can fight and I can badmouth and I can hold a grudge. I mean, did you see what they did to me? Jesus is calling us to a better way. To show kindness anyway. To show kindness that others don't deserve. Now, there is a great example in the Bible of this kind of kindness. I want to show it to you. Let's leave your marker here in Luke 6. Let's go to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50. Now, in Genesis 50, this is near the end of the story of Joseph. And Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And now, years later, after all of that, their father has died, and they're worried that Joseph is going to finally try to get his revenge for everything they've done to him. They are worried that Joseph has been nursing his anger for all these years and is about to let them have it. So they approach Joseph to try to head that off at the pass and say, maybe we can talk him out of being ugly to us after what we deserve for what we did to him. Genesis 50 and verse 15. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph and saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. And said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So they come to him and the pretext is, don't forget, dad said before he died, dad said, you be sure and forgive them, Joseph. And so they're reminding him of that. And I love this little scene because in verse 17, it says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I think Joseph is maybe sad that they would think this about him, that what they are really thinking is after all these years, he's just been biding his time and now he's finally going to lash out and hurt them. He says in verse 19, do not fear. Don't be afraid of me. God turned your evil into good, he says. And he says in verse 21, I will provide for you and your little ones. So what Joseph does here is he shows kindness that is undeserved. There is a simple answer to the question, what do they deserve? His brothers deserve to be punished, maybe sold into slavery themselves. Maybe they need in some way to be subjugated to Joseph. Maybe in some way they need to suffer like he suffered. But Joseph says, you know, if I were to do that and I were to try to lash out at you, that would put me in the place of God. He says that specifically in verse 19. Don't fear for am I in the place of God. God is the one who's in control of all of that. But more than that, Joseph is over it. And so he says, I'm done. You don't have anything to fear from me. I'm also intrigued by the fact, did you see in verse 21, he talks about providing for your little ones, your kids. Can you imagine what would have happened if Joseph had, now that his dad is dead, had suddenly taken out all his anger on his brothers and on their families? Well, then all of a sudden, not only are his brothers suffering, but his nieces and nephews, their little ones, maybe even their grandchildren by this time, are suffering. Those kids would suffer even though they hadn't done anything wrong. They would suffer for their parents' sins. And then they would have felt this tremendous resentment toward Joseph. And they probably would have been right to feel that. And so maybe they bide their time. And when they have the opportunity to take it out on Joseph's kids, they get to. And then, you know, then Joseph's kids grow up with this sense of animosity toward his brother's kids. And so suddenly there is a rift in the family that lasts for generations. Everyone feeling like they are right to be angry. Someone has to break the cycle of evil and pain. Somebody has to say, even though I deserve different treatment, I'm going to let this go. Even though they should not have done that to me, this is not right. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to continue to respond with unkindness to their unkindness. And the one who breaks that cycle, Jesus says, is my disciples. My people will be the people who do not respond in kind. My people will be the people to end the grudge. And they will do it by showing kindness that is undeserved. Now this story also shows us 
that often our unkindness is rooted in some problem in us. See, we think it's about the person who's hurting us, but actually it's about us. If Joseph was still resentful and bitter and angry after all these years, then he would easily have taken this time to say, you know what, I do have some things to say, and I do want you guys to pay. But because Joseph sees God in this, he has moved on, he can end the dispute, he can show undeserved kindness. And so Joseph becomes in a desert full of hatred and bitterness. He becomes an oasis for his brothers. And suddenly there is peace in the family. That's what Jesus calls us to, to be an oasis of kindness like that. Let's go back to Luke 6. The second thing I want to show you here is that we become this kind of oasis by showing unexpected kindness. Unexpected kindness. In verse 32, Luke 6, 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So when we only love those who love us or we only like our friends or we only lend to those who we know will always fully repay us, He says, you're only doing what any godless person would do. He says it repeatedly. Verse 32, even sinners love those who love them. Verse 33, even sinners do the same. Verse 34, even sinners lend to sinners. But when he talks about this, he he talks about expectations. Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? See, often our kindness is based on some expectation that it will come back around to us. We do our kindness because we know that maybe we're kind of a down payment on future favors from that person. If they know that we've been kind to them, someday they'll be kind to us. Or maybe it's that we know if we're kind in front of other people that we'll get some kind of social benefit. They'll talk well of us. People will have respect for us. But there is something higher than just doing it and expecting some good for ourselves. In verse 35, he says, Love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is great, kind to the ungrateful and the evil. See, when we give without those expectations, he says you can expect something from God. Your reward will be great from God and you'll be like God, sons of the Most High, who does good without expectation. He does good to people who have no right to expect any good from him. He shows mercy to them. Verse 37 now, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, you've probably heard these verses or their companion verses in Matthew 7 that have become part of a large debate about, you know, should we judge each other and does anybody have the right to comment on my behavior and that kind of thing. But if you step out of that and you kind of leave that discussion behind, I think there is something powerful here about something about how we show kindness in the world. 
In verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. See, instead of seeking to judge, Jesus says, seek not to judge. Instead of seeking to look down on other people and criticize them and find fault with them, seek not to condemn. Instead of holding things against other people, seek to forgive. Instead of withholding, seek to give. This is unexpected kindness. We live in a culture that just loves to see people fail and fall. We revel in scandals. When famous and beautiful people wreck their homes and their families disintegrate, we lean in, we want to read about that, we want to hear what happened to them, as if in some way it makes us better. I'm a college football guy. Uh, In college football, it's fascinating to me. Uh, It's already happened this year, you know, we... We have a virus, people aren't even playing games, and you know, some teams only have a couple of games. But you can just, every, every season, you can count on it. There will be article after article, podcast after podcast, about all the coaches who are on the hot seat. Who's going to get fired this year? And somehow, it seems like we, you know, we, we're okay with them signing these big contracts because we know some of them are going to fail, and we'll get to watch them get fired and fall from grace. On social media, we love to see the drama, the mud fly, see people arguing with each other, seeing people call each other names. This is the world that we live in. It is a world that celebrates failures and falling, whether those are political figures, sometimes religious figures. It just seems to give us a satisfaction when we see other people fail. But that hurts other people, and it hurts us. And Jesus calls us to a kindness that is different from what the world expects. Let the world act that way, but Jesus' disciples will not. The idea of unexpected kindness. I've heard this articulated by a preacher, and I just love the way he said this. He talked about finding ways to serve and surprise his congregation. Have you ever tried to surprise someone with some act of goodness or kindness, to do something good that is unexpected. It's beyond what people would normally expect or require. I want to talk to you and show you in the Bible an example of this type of kindness. So leave your marker here in Luke 6. We'll come back in a minute. We're going to go over to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. So Ruth tells the story of Naomi, who travels to Moab with her husband and two sons. And while she is there, uh, her sons die and her husband dies. And so she is left alone with her two daughters-in-law. And so in in Ruth 1, she has a talk with her two daughters-in-law, one of which is Ruth and the other is a woman named Orpah. And she wants to dismiss them. You guys could go on with the rest of your lives because... My sons are gone. I can't give you any more sons to be husbands. So you guys need to just go find somebody else. Uh, Not in an ugly way, but in a uh, trying to be gracious to them. And I want to read a little bit of this. In Ruth 1 and verse 8, it says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. 
May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? So down in verse 14, it says, They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So Naomi talks about the kindness that Ruth and Orpah have done to her. But here Ruth does a greater kindness. And what's impressive about this, you know, she even has her other sister-in-law, Orpah, who, who goes on back to her family. And nobody would have blamed Ruth for leaving behind Naomi, who she has no real connection to anymore because her husband has died. Naomi is going to go back to the land of Israel. Ruth is from Moab. There, there's no connection here. And no one would say, well, that's some disservice you're doing by going back home. But Ruth does a greater kindness. She refuses to leave her. In fact, she says she'll follow her wherever, no matter what blessing it brings her or doesn't bring her. She'll serve her God. She'll live in her land. She is going to take care of Naomi. What this is, is unexpected kindness. There's no requirement for it. There is no reason for it besides a desire to bless and to help someone else. It comes from her own heart. And it is impressive that when Boaz, who is going to become Ruth's husband, hears about what Ruth has done, it impresses him because he knows this speaks well of this woman. She has done beyond what would be required. It is an unexpected kindness. So if you and I are going to be an oasis of kindness in a world full of hatred and hostility, it's going to be because we are showing kindness to people who don't deserve it, And we are showing kindness to people who don't expect it. Let's go back to Luke 6. The third thing I want to show you here, Luke 6, is that we can show unnecessary kindness. Luke 6 and verse 37. Luke 6, 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So Jesus here says, respond to these situations with an extra dose of kindness. And he says that in verse 38. Uh, These pictures in verse 38, I I always took them as soda. Uh, I guess this is me growing up and, you know, 20th and 21st century uh, is soda. You know, you shake it up and, and it spews out everywhere, which is not always, you know, the best Thing to have soda spewing all over your lap, which is the way I used to read verse 38. Actually, of course, this is not talking about soda. Uh, these pictures come from when merchants would measure out grain. And there was a little part of the cloak that would fold over the belt and would kind of make a little pocket. And so when the merchants would give grain, uh, a good measure 
would be to dump enough grain that it would fill up the pocket and then you kind of press it down to make sure you have all that you can fit in there. And then there's even more that they keep pouring on top of it so that it's kind of spilling out. And so you can hear that in verse 38 where he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. And then he says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So think about a merchant who's selling grain and you buy a certain amount and he only gives you a little and doesn't even fill up what's in your pocket. And then think about another merchant who just keeps trying to give you as much as possible, as much as you can carry. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. It will be what you get. The implication, of course, is it will be given to us by God. So if we are generous... God will be generous with us. If we go above and beyond extending mercy and positivity, God will go above and beyond with us. What I love about this picture is that it describes kindness as doing more than following the letter of the law. It's not doing the minimum. It is doing what I'm calling unnecessary kindness, what's above and beyond, more than is required. No one would know if we didn't. We wouldn't be violating some specific command of God's. But when we do more than is required in terms of kindness, it pleases God. There is a great example of this type of kindness in the Bible. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel 9. So this little scene comes after Saul and Jonathan have died. And David is established as king. And he remembers the kindness that Jonathan, his friend, showed him. And so he asks a question in 2 Samuel 9 and verse 1. It's a kindness question. 2 Samuel 9, 1. And David said, Is there there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So, verse 3. Uh, Ziba says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. So not only is there someone from Saul's family, there's someone who is actually Jonathan's son, but he is crippled in his feet. So verse 6, it says, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness For the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And so down in verse 10, David says to Ziba, you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, but your master's grandson shall have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And so David shows kindness to Mephibosheth. I want to remind you of the context of this. Back when David and Jonathan, when Jonathan was still alive, David and Jonathan were great friends, and they made several different covenants with each other, promises, that they knew what was going on. Uh, Jonathan was the prince. He was next in line to be king. And yet David was the up-and-comer in Israel. And so they knew that they were supposed to be in rivalry with each other. And yet they were great friends and they loved each other and they refused to become rivals. So the covenants that they made 
at least what we know about them, say things like, you show kindness and not basically kill my family when you become king. Jonathan is concerned that when David becomes king, David might be tempted to kill the royal family that preceded him because that's what typically happened. In fact, that's what Mephibosheth is worried is happening here when it says, when David says, don't fear, verse 7. Mephibosheth, when he gets the call from David, he's terrified because that's what kings did in the ancient world. You, if you're going to take over and make a new dynasty, you have to end the old dynasty or else there's always the threat of that person coming back. But here's what I want to impress on you. David does more than just not kill Jonathan's son. David wants to show kindness. David does something that he is in no way required to do. No oath he has made requires him to do this. He simply says in verse 1, I want to show kindness. He says it again and again. I will show you kindness, verse 7, for the sake of your father Jonathan. And, And Mephibosheth is humbled. I'm sure he's shocked. Who am I? What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? David shows unnecessary kindness. He gives him a spot at the king's table for good. He goes above and beyond the letter of the law. He goes above and beyond what is required. And so David, in this scene, becomes an incredible example for us, just like Joseph does, just like Ruth does. By saying there are people who because they trust in God will show kindness that is beyond what is deserved and beyond what is expected and beyond what is necessary. Jesus says those are my disciples, people who go above and beyond. That we can be a blessing to other people, not because someone makes us, but because we follow Jesus who lavished grace on us far beyond what we deserve or expect or require. What I'm getting at with these thoughts about kindness and what I believe Jesus is getting at in Luke chapter 6 is that there is a way of treating people that is based on their behavior, what they deserve, what they expect, what they deem necessary. Jesus is saying kindness is higher and I want my people to live higher than basing their behavior on how others, especially sinners, act toward them. I mentioned earlier, we're we're living in a world that's full of unkindness, it's full of hostility. And if all we do is contribute more to that, what have we done? How have we represented Jesus How have we worked to make the world a better place? If all we do is add another list of grievances and grudges and bitterness, someone has to break the cycle. And Jesus says, my disciples will do it. Often, our unkindness in response to other people is about our inability to see people as people. When people hurt us, we we no longer think of them the way we think of ourselves. We don't think about, well, I wonder why he said that. I wonder what's going on in his life that would make him be so angry toward me. 
I wonder if he even realizes how that made me feel. Instead of seeing them as people, we suddenly see them only as as monsters. We feel victimized. We feel attacked. And so we struggle to see past what they've done to us. Or maybe their wrong political views. Or maybe their faulty religious opinion. Or maybe just their frustrating personality. And so we no longer see them as people. All we see is the thing that we can't stand. Jesus is reminding us that kindness is higher. It looks at others with love even when they have made themselves our enemies. So Jesus says, be more than reactive. Be an oasis of kindness. And along the way, we also find that kindness benefits us. I found this passage as I was studying for this. It's Proverbs eleven seventeen. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. This is one of those Proverbs that if you don't stop yourself, you might just rush right past. Did you notice? A man who is kind benefits himself. See, we think kindness is something we do to others and for others. That's not what it says. It says a man who is kind benefits himself. And a man who is cruel, well, we think if someone's cruel, they're hurting others. It says, no, a man who is cruel hurts himself. Which one of those will describe me? We're in a desert of hatred and fear and anger and hurt. So let's be an oasis of kindness. Would you pray with me about that? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for times like these that we can open your word and hear your call to us. It is a challenging call, Father. And as we see the wisdom in what Jesus has taught us, we also see the difficulty in it. And Father, we ask for your help to live this truth. Father, as we engage with those in the world, as we engage with our families, as we engage with our coworkers and friends. This week, we're going to be tempted to be ugly and unkind in response to others, to react to others' evil with evil, to retaliate in kind and to try to take vengeance when others treat us in ways that are unfair. And Father, we ask for your patience and your wisdom and the discipline to control ourselves. Father, we thank you for the way you have shown such kindness to us that is far out of proportion to what we deserve or even what we need and that you continue to heap grace on us. We thank you for this, Father. And we pray that you'll help us to let that grace change us so that we become a people who want to give grace and not just receive it. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling physically, those who are sick, those who are in the hospital, those who are at the forefront of our mind. And Father, we ask your richest blessings on them and those who are caring and making decisions for them. We pray that their bodies will respond and that they can recover from this sickness. Father, we trust you in all things. 
We are thankful for all that you've done for us. And we ask you continue to bless and watch over your people. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.